is Terry Bradshaw, quarterback, Pittsburgh Steelers. Touched by Downing. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 7-15. There's a new home run champion of all time. And it's ABC's Monday Night Baseball, live from Fenway Park in Boston, Massachusetts. Fading, looking, looking, looking. He's under the gun. He's fired, he throws. It is. This is baseball, Major League Baseball, and this is Mel Allen. And welcome to the Past Our Prime podcast with Bill Mahoney and Mark Hoffman. I'm Scott Johnston. Thanks for joining us. We are talking about an issue that came out 50 years ago today, the January 14th, 1974 issue of Sports Illustrated with Julius Irving, Dr. J on the cover, um, one of the more iconic players to ever play the game. And like we were saying before we started talking, you know, most guys are the face of a franchise, but the doc, the doctor was he was the fran- the face of a of an entire league. Yeah, I mean, he uh, the ABA was my favorite league. I actually loved the ABA because it was this mystery league. Hardly any games were ever on television. CBS did a Saturday game of the week for a short time. And so you, you, the only way you could learn about these teams is like through Sports Illustrator or magazines like that. You don't even know what uniforms they wore or stuff like that. So it was a fun league, and it, it was a groundbreaking league, and it, it actually helped the NBA when they merged because it gave them elements of the game that I think helped the NBA down the road. Yeah, I mean, Dr. J, in, in my eyes, in terms of where he is, and yeah, you can go back and see Elgin Baylor as well, but... He revolutionized basketball with what he was able to do. No one had ever seen what he was able to do with a basketball. In terms of when he went right before the NBA, when he came out of UMass, went to Rucker Park, there were big games there. They shut down schools so kids would sit all around the roofs just to watch Dr. J. And you think the guy, he was absolutely amazing for us when we were kids. And no one will forever ever forget that you know that dunk he had. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could say that about Dr. J. You're like, yeah. which one are you talking about? But the the one at the All Star game where yeah. he took mm-hmm. off from the free throw mm-hmm. line and kind of just I think opened up the possibilities yeah. that a lot of America had never seen basketball players do that kind of thing because mm-hmm. you know a lot of you know back then dunking was not a part of the game. In fact, it was not allowed for a long part. Uh, time in in basketball so he just brought a different element and a different showmanship without being you know he had that humility to him as well but but he was definitely a showman what was interesting is because he started his aba career with the virginia squires and the squires had not just dr j they had george gervin on that team but they had financial problems and they had to give both players away and with dr j moving to the nets into a major market like new york my opinion that really helped the ABA eventually merged with the NBA because it was a star in a big market. And also, Dr. J was, 
he was approachable. He wasn't a guy that, that, no, I don't want to talk to you. They said before games, he would be talking to moms and dads and kids and signing autographs. He was one of the first huge ball players that made you feel like, mm. hey, I know him. And he just came off, not just on the court, but off the court, an amazing person. I think if you combine his ABA and NBA stats, he's the eighth leading scorer yeah. in NBA history. But I don't think the NBA counts ABA stats, which is a shame because I think at some point they should. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it seems kind of. Why silly. wouldn't they? I don't know. I mean, is that? I mean, that. I mean, because it's still a league that merged. So wouldn't you take those? It's... The, the the interesting question would be to see if the NFL incorporates AFL numbers. Yeah. To see if they That's... do. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean. Yeah, the NHL doesn't. NHL doesn't count the WHA numbers. Mm. So, hmm. you know, gotcha. maybe that down. Uh, the magazine starts, um, and by the way, we'll, we'll be talking shortly with uh, a man who knows Dr. J extremely well, Peter Vesey, um, who's covered the NBA longer than probably basically anybody. So uh, Peter will be joining us shortly, as will a man by the name of Bill Sanders. Um, Bill Sanders is a uh, computer data analyst, and... Um, he worked with a guy by the name of Bud Gooding. There's a quick note here, letter from the publisher, saying that uh, Bud Goody was a man who started using computers to pick football games and their outcomes. And, you know, everyone does that now. But 50 years ago, that was revolutionary. And um, he picked the Super Bowl eight winner. He picked the Dolphins to win by nine over the Vikings. They were favored by six. So he said, lay the points. They won by 17. Um, so um, kind of an interesting. And, and, and at some at one point, the, the teams really started getting into these computer guys and, and, and getting their opinions on, on certain plays. So we'll talk with Bill Sanders about his uh, friend Bud Goody um, later on. But, but let's go right to the scorecard. Um, portion of the magazine and anything for you guys jump out at you? Don Peters. Don Peters said that fans without tickets should be on a waiting list and ticket holders not attending the game would would advise the central office and the no-show tickets would end up with no ticket people. That is now called StubHub. <laughs> That's how called stub up. You pay for those. But just to think, you go to a game. You and I go to a game 50 years ago and go, oh, there's no tickets, but two guys in the front row aren't showing up. You want them? Okay. Right. Man. Right. Well, the other thing about that, and I, don't, I think it was in the same article, was, you know, kids today, and here we go, right? Kids today. <laughs> but they don't realize that growing up in the 70s, 80s, maybe even into the 90s, if the, the, the local game wasn't sold Mm -hmm. out it was blacked out Mm -hmm. there would be many games raiders jets i remember played Mm -hmm. a playoff game where the raiders would buy like the last Mm eight thousand tickets to um to sell the game out so that it could be on tv so um you know to think that they they that that was a possibility so they basically didn't televise home games Mm -hmm. um and Finally, owners realize mm-hmm. that, you know what, might be better off to let our product be seen by the by the people who will end up buying these tickets. And I remember in baseball, they used to do that. Not only would, if the Dodgers or Angels were playing a home game, if they were playing a road game, they couldn't be on the game of the week. It was blacked out in Los right. Angeles. And that didn't affect attendance. It was just interesting. Yeah. Now every game's on TV. Now joining us... Um, 
from his home, I assume, is Mr. Bill Sanders. We were talking just a second ago about the um, what Bud Goody started, but um, you would know that much more than, than, than us. If you could just give us a quick rundown or a long rundown, it makes no difference to us, um, about how you met Bud and what Bud was doing at the time in terms of, of picking football games. Sure. Um, and Bud's emphasis was never so much on picking football uh, game winners, but in using stats and stat analysis to understand, you know, why teams won, how to make teams play a better and play a smarter game through stat analysis. Um, I met Bud when he was using uh, software that was produced at a company I worked for, a very sophisticated stat analysis package, mostly used in biostatistics and biomath. Bud was a, was a customer, and uh, he used to, we were in West LA, he was in Studio City, he used to come by from time to time, and when he did, we would always talk. And, I understood what he was trying to do immediately, and he didn't run into that very often. It, it took a pretty sophisticated stat person to understand Bud in the way he talked about football and football stats. He had done a uh, master's in, in uh, psychometrics at USC and was was pretty sophisticated stat analyst. And we became great friends. I started working for him, and at the time, Bud was producing statistical reports for professional football teams. Um, he had lost a couple of clients, but at one time he had as many as 16 client teams wow. in the NFL using his stat reports. In fact, you know, they were kind of complicated and Bud used to produce the, uh, a small telephone sized booklet of reports every every uh, a week and would send them to the teams and he didn't have a lot of time to to try and tell head coaches what this stuff meant bud was really responsible for the position of quality control coach coming about in the nfl as they hired guys to try to understand the information that bud was sending him he had a big impact on the game yeah and he 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 always looked for and tried to understand, you know, what was the important stats that separated winners from losers. And it, it's, it's, he came up with the most important one being yards per pass attempt, which is something you see now. You yeah. see them talk about it in the NFL, but they don't calculate it the same way Bud did. Bud would use sacks as incomplete passes. Uh -huh. It's like you drop back, you're going to pass. It was an attempt. You were very unsuccessful at it, but you, you, you kind of overvalue the team if you count that as a non-attempt. It was definitely a, fail, a, a failure and a massive failure. Makes sense. It, it does. So Bud's numbers are slightly different from the NFL numbers in that stat. And that usually shows up as the most uh, important stat in the game in any one particular year. Bill, I'm looking at Mark Hoffman here. I'm looking at the uh, picture in the magazine article, 
and Bud is standing in front of this IBM machine, and the 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 <laughs> how huge and the whole room is just taken up by computers. I mean, to do what he had to do then is so much harder than now when you have a a small device and you're able to get more instantaneous results. It it's very much the case. In fact, the um, you know early on you did have to use those great big computers, and uh, in fact. That's how Bud got started, actually. Um, from his psychometrics education, he, he was a showbiz person, worked for Goodson Todman Productions in TV, was Groucho Marx's uh, promo guy and Art Linkletter's promo guy. And his job was to really understand the ratings numbers. And one day he had a conversation with Debbie Reynolds' husband, who owned a or worked for a computer service bureau. Back in the days when you only had big mainframe computers, you know, only the giant banks and corporations and big government agencies, big universities could afford to buy those things. Other normal sized businesses would have to rent time at them through a computer service bureau. And Debbie Reynolds's husband asked Bud what they could do to promote their service bureau. And Bud said, how about the computer looks at the football game and predicts the winner. And he did that for them for the 1961 Rose Bowl <laughs> and got it right. But again, to your point, the only computers we had at the time were those things that took up a great big room. They needed a, their whole air-conditioned floor. Right. They were water-cooled. Right. They cost millions of dollars you, back then when a million dollars was real money. You were either predicting football games or trying to land on yeah. the moon. Yeah. <laughs> and you didn't, you didn't exactly. get the results. In fact, land, landing on the moon was actually easier. The backup <laughs> computer for landing on the moon shortly after that was a, a, a little handheld Hewlett Packard device. Nice. And and you could not come close to running Bud Goody's uh, programs on a machine like that. In fact, it wasn't until, um, you know, well into a couple of generations of PCs when you could actually run them, run these routines, but it would still take half an hour, mm. two hours mm. to run and spit out the data. A couple of years later, um, uh, we could do it on little on on little laptops. I was reading in um, in the uh, article that Bud said, or Bud, it was said of Bud that um, sports was years behind the times when it came to using statistics by Dr. W. J. Dixon from the American Statistical Association. How much did Bud get resistance to trying to implement this kind of um, new way to look at um, football. Oh man, Bud got resistance all his life. All his life he got resistance. Um, it's funny how he got started. He wrote the story about the 1961 Rose Bowl, predicted the winner. He happened to get it right. He'll tell you that was more luck than anything else. Um, but some people took notice. One of the people who took notice was George Allen at the Rams who later went on to contact Bud and say, hey, um, would you use your stuff to look at the game that we play, NFL football, and see if you can give us any advice on how to maybe play a smarter game? And Bud did that and, and started providing George Allen with information, which he used. 
But even so, George Allen would keep telling Bud, Bud, you know a lot about football stats, but you don't know anything about football. <laughs> <laughs> so even his first big fan uh, was still giving him resistance. Yes. But I went with Bud. Yeah, just pick up where I started with Bud. It was back in the mid-1990s. And at that time, he was paring down the number of coaches that he worked with and eventually going to one per year. So he wanted to be able to support them a little bit better and explain to them what these stats meant because it was still clear that the teams didn't really understand any of the stuff he was sending them. <laughs> the first team I worked with Bud on was um, uh, the Green Bay Packers under Mike Holmgren that went on to win a Super Bowl. Oh, and nice. Bud got an annual invite to the NFL owners and coaches meeting. I guess they call it the annual meeting now. And, and, and I went with Bud to about 10 of those. And he'd always try to talk to coaches and tell them what, what he did and see if anyone was interested in being a, a, a customer. And he generally, for a while, he had no trouble having, lining up customers because all of George Allen's assistants wanted what he provided right so guys like dick vermeil is a lot was a long-term customer wherever he was um and and several others but he didn't hesitate to stop to talk to to every head coach out there and it was clear that so many of them would just push back uh against bud and myself at the time as bud used to always tell me he said Bill, these guys just don't believe that two guys with a computer can tell them anything about the game of football. Right, right. We're talking with uh, Bill Sanders. Um, I should say, actually, Dr. Bill Sanders. Bill has his Ph.D. at Penn State. And, Mark, the same thing you have, physical yes. chemistry. Yes. So con <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> A double masters. <laughs> um, and also um, is the author, co-author of the book, Creative Conflict, A Practical Guide for Business Negotiators, published by Harvard Business Review Press a couple years ago. And uh, I'm just reading this, something, Billy, you sent me, but it's it's kind of what you were saying about going to the, the owners' meetings where Pete Roselk came up to Bob and said, hey, hey, bud, is, is Team A your client? Yes. Is Team B your client? Yes. Is Team C your client? Yes. Bud, you're changing the game. I mean, he had the the uh, attention of the of the higher, higher, higher ups. Yes. And then the funny thing was, you know, he charged a very small fee because he he mostly sort of did this as a hobby business. He didn't really need the money. And and even at that, you would have teams bulk bulk it at. at at signing up for the service. A small amount of money. I mean, our fee would not cover their jockstrap bill for the year. Wow. And and most would either not listen for a couple of reasons. I mean, you, you got to understand that guys who get to the top of the game, they're NFL head coaches, they got there doing something, and they figure that they got there by doing stuff that worked that would make them a winner. And it was that was not always the case, and you we would always see it in uh, maybe new owners that came in and took over a team and wanted to direct emphasis in one direction, and that direction being absolutely 
not going to make a difference in their one loss record mm-hmm. or in especially college coaches who came to the game with a fantastic track record and washed out almost immediately because they had no mm-hmm. sense of what was really important in winning an NFL game as opposed to a college football game. Didn't all these stats, though, help create the quality control coach that had not existed beforehand? The quality control coach was created to understand Bud Goody's stats. Absolutely. What, looking back or going forward, if Bud Goody was around right now, what would what would be his impact? Because now everyone carries a computer on their hand. So would he just be even bigger in terms of people picking games? Would he be part of that? Um, yes and no. I mean, we do still publish on our website a, a thing that we call the predict report, which shows our calculation for the point difference between every game to be played all year. And, you know, some people are interested in that and some are not. Um, certainly we could use more friendly formats to make it better looking for people. and We could provide instantaneous uh, predictions for people as well. But there are a lot of people who, who, who don't want to follow Bud's line of thinking in what's important about winning a football game. And when they hear about it, you know, they'll, they, just, they think they can do it on their own. In fact, there are professional football teams who've been using stat analysis for as long as Bud Goody, and I swear they have not got it right yet. <laughs> Yeah, we, we can probably guess who those teams are. I'm a fan of one of them. <laughs> uh, it, it, it could be. And then there are others who spent multiple times what Bud's annual fee would be to hire in-house statisticians and reverse engineer Bud's work from the reports that they that they had collected when they were assistance under other head coaches. Now, 50 years ago, it said that he was syndicated in as many as 26 mm-hmm. papers. Maybe it grew uh, even more than that um, after that. But but the Washington Post, the Dallas Times Herald, the uh, Herald Examiner. I want to say he said, when I die, and we did lose Bud a, a few years ago, I, I believe. Um, when I die, my tombstone can say, here lies Goody. He told the world about average yards per pass attempt. <laughs> is, is, that, is that Bud in a nutshell? That is Bud in a nutshell, yes. And, and the reason that's important, because if you take this one stat, yards per pass attempt difference. Again, a lot of people don't understand this, but offense and defense are very nearly of equal importance. Most people would guess offense was more important. It is 51% to 49%. In other words, you can be a great team if you have a super offense, but you can also be a great team if you have a super defense. It's rare that you have a team that excels to the you know top one or two, three spots in both offense and defense, talking about yards per pass attempt and yards per pass attempt allowed uh, to your opponent. But if you take the difference, what you earn, yards per pass attempt and subtract what you give up on yards per pass attempt, you get a small stat, you know, zero, maybe a slight negative number if you're weak, um, plus one yard, plus two yards. 
if you earn three yards more than you give up, a positive three on that stat, you're likely a Super Bowl winner. If wow. you give up two yards, you're likely in the Super Bowl. You're a strong contender. One, you're a playoff team. That one stat will tell you every year. Wow. Yeah. So it's analytics, basically. We wouldn't have analytics today if it wasn't for Bud. Bud sort of paved the way for that. Absolutely. In fact, Bud was recognized by the American Statistical Association as the pioneer, the founder of the science of statistical analysis in sports. You've talked so much about how great a job and how Bud Goody's done so many great things in the statistical area. But then you, you've mentioned people like Debbie Reynolds, George Allen. What kind of guy was Bud Goody like? Not just the guy that sits in front of a computer. Oh. What was he like? Oh, he was he was a crazy guy. He he wanted to be a, a a pro athlete or a coach in pro athletics, but he stood about five foot seven and weighed one hundred and thirty five pounds. He uh, he went to Occidental College. Um, he he was very popular in show business. His wife uh, was good friends with a lot of show business people as well. Bud uh, collected classic cars. He had a a Camaro SS 350 that came from Art Linkletter. He had uh, he had a, an El Dorado convertible from Dean Martin with the big 455 V8 engine in it. When 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 Bud got very old and was having trouble driving, he, he would not stop driving, even though he eventually lost his license and would end up in the in the in the court periodically and uh, the judge just would not put him, put him in jail but kept threatening it threatening and bud just kept driving he was he was tenacious and irascible and funny as could be he was he was a very interesting guy sounds like a great mentor and, and friend oh absolutely absolutely so it sounds like the luckiest day of your life or one of them is when he walked into your shop and you guys became friends you were sort of like kindred spirits it was, that's, that is the case. I mean, we both just lit up immediately. He, he came in to ask one like silly question and probably, I think I remember it was before lunch and he stayed all day and we, uh, we spent the whole day in my office talking about stuff. Wonderful. Hey, Bill, this has been great. I appreciate you, uh, juggling your day for us and making time for us and uh now you can get back and uh, do what's important take care of your mom but thank you so much for uh for chatting with us today you know you're very welcome it's a pleasure i hope you guys have a lot of success and a lot of luck with this and uh, i'll be uh following and watching what you do thank, thank you, you Bill. thank you thank you so much so that goes to show you that um you know the computer got it right and then the sports illustrated mm -hmm. had their author named Tex Mall and he was going to predict the game as well. So so Bill Sanders predicts that the Dolphins would win by 9, they win by 17. Tex Mall predicted that the Vikings were going to win in an upset and he was the <laughs> the expert and um and he's know, out of a job. He, yeah. He's uh, gone. One-time shot. He's exactly. done. He's done. So come on in. You know, we'll talk to you about your your pick. So, so then um Thank you, Bill. That leads us to um, the people portion of, of the of the Sports Illustrated. One thing that jumped out to me was um, 
that Johnny Unitas played his final game in 1973. He started four games for the Chargers. People, mm-hmm. Some people forget that. Um, but uh, the future Hall of Fame quarterback had his number 19 jersey sent to the James Lawrence Kernan Hospital mm-hmm. for Crippled Children in, in Baltimore with an, an inscription that read, An Appreciation for Making It All Worthwhile. You, I mean, when you think Baltimore Colts, uh, Johnny U is, is definitely who you think of. So mm-hmm. it's kind of sad that he had that. You know, so many mm-hmm. of the greats do that. You know, they, they, they still want to play. They think they can play, and they end their career, you know, like Willie Mays with the match. Joe Namath. That kind of stuff. Joe Namath with the Rams, right? Yeah. Well, he had those high like shoes, those black shoes he wore, and almost mm-hmm. like it was like lead shoes as he'd walk up to the line of scrimmage. But the thing about Yanis, I remember a great football player, but he had that traditional crew cut that was like his signature. And then he later became a broadcaster, and all of a sudden the crew cut was gone, and the hair was like you know more modern and parted to the side. And it freaked me out as a kid. That's not Johnny U. He can't have a hair like that. Right. He's the crew cut back. <laughs> um. You know, we're just past the bowl games. We talked um, last week with Bob Thomas, who had the game-winning kick for Notre Dame to win the national championship. But um, there was a funny story, uh, Billy, about the kid who caught that ball. Yeah, um, Robert Vanderbrook. He caught Bob Thomas's game-winning field goal. Actually, what was it? Someone came. Was it? He ended up going down to the meet Era Parsegian. Who was it, Scott? Someone had offered him. It was one of the players offered five hundred dollars for the it ball. It was the quarterbacks. Who was that's a Tom, Tom Clements. Clements? Tom Clements' dad, dad. offered him five hundred. Yeah. He said no. He wants to give it to Era Parsegian. So he goes down there. He gets it to him. Parsegian gives him what is it? Three jerseys, a ball, and a photograph. Yeah. Now Scott and I have been trying to do this, but we know there's a Robert Vanderbrook that is a doctor back east and it might be his son we got to give him a call and find out if he has those things that'd be so cool but yeah. just just to think we would have had this before we talked to bob thomas we'd be you know right right yeah you know you know speaking about error though persegan the other thing that caught my eye in the uh, sports illustrated was he was advocating that instead of these national championship games that they all of a sudden advocate for a playoff series where the top teams you know compete and they use the bowl games for that Hmm, I wonder if that ever worked. Never going to happen. That'll well, never work. They now. do do it now, but it's taken all the controversy out. That, it is. They just <laughs> picked the four teams. And I also, I also like there's one guy in there that said um, he was a, a university president, I believe. He said there's not an athletic department in the country where officials are optimistic about the financial outlook of college football five years from now. Mm. <laughs> okay, he's fired. I mean, jeez. I mean, they only make billions. Missed it by that much. Yeah, just, just he also said, name, he said no would never work. This name image like that's right, right. That's right. right. Yeah, get rid of that. Uh, speaking of they said it, that's a, that's a thing they have in mm. Sports Illustrated. Just some, some quotes, and I, I like this one. This was from Woody Hayes, who said, When we lose a game, nobody is madder at me than me. When I look in the morning, in the mirror in the morning, I want to take a swing at me. <laughs> So fast forward, December 29th, 1978, and old Woody did take a swing at somebody. He took a swing at Charlie Bauman of Clemson, who mm-hmm. had just picked off Art Schleister to uh, end the Gator Bowl for all intents and purposes. And poor Charlie ends up on the sideline of Ohio State 
and the next thing you know, Woody Hayes is just slugging this guy <laughs> who's got who's got all his pads on and his helmet. I mean, the guy uh, obviously had kind of you know lost it there for a little bit, and and that was uh, that was the end of a legendary yeah. coach. He was fired the next day. I watched that game live, so I saw that happening live, and I from what I remember, Woody, it was like almost he had a straight arm. He like punched him like with his arm completely straight uh, against the side and uh, um, I was looking at going what the heck is he doing there I mean you know it's kind of it, similar it to it wasn't well thought out no it's kind of similar to the way uh, Dramon Green threw that punch the other night or yeah. his 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 arm came out and stuff like that well I've always blamed it on Bauman <laughs> just don't intercept the ball. You don't get it. Yeah. I mean, just knock it down. Yes. Give them another play. Yes. I mean, come on, man. Yeah. Poor Woody. Yeah. Uh, that brings us back to um, Dr. J. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about him briefly off mm-hmm. the top. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, joining us now is someone who covered the doctor back when he first joined the Nets, um, Peter Vesey. Most people say, you know, don't need an introduction. Um, and then they go on to give this big introduction of who their guest is. But with Peter, I'm not going to do that. We're just going to get right to it. How big a factor was Dr. J in the ABA-NBA merger? Uh, he, was, he was probably number one. The, uh, the NBA wanted him badly. And, uh, and then, of course, you know, the teams, the four teams were willing to do anything to get into the NBA. So, you know, worked on both sides. Uh, unfortunately for the Nets, um, you know, they couldn't afford what Julius was asking for once there was a merger. I, you know, to this day, to this day, I'm, I'm still, I still believe the Nets that they didn't, they did, they did not have to renegotiate his contract. Um and he wouldn't report unless they unless they did. You know, his agent Erwin Weiner said that uh, it was in a, a verbal agreement with the owner Roy Bow that if there was a merger, they would redo his contract. Well, I know I know Erwin Weiner really well. He's long past, but uh, there is there is no way in the world he would have not had that in writing. So, you know, I I believe I believe. Uh, I believe the Nets got screwed. So, but I, I don't, I don't believe that it was true. I think the Nets. It's funny. I, I'm in touch with Roy Bo's son in the last week or two, and um, I, I, if I ever do get serious about finishing this book, I, I'm going to sit down with him and see what he knows about that. Um, I've spoken to Billy Melchioni, who was the, who was the general manager at the time. Of the Nets, he said there was no agreement. Of course, he doesn't, you know, he wasn't privy to what Roy Bowe deals on the side. You know, he, we, we understand that. But he he told me that um, he did offer, he said, you guys want more money. Yeah, they were, they were upset because Tiny Archibald, who was just acquired, was making, I don't know, say $450,000 a year, be huge money, whatever it was, it was huge, and uh, way more than Julius. And so they said, you know, if you want Tiny's contract, we'll give you Tiny's contract. But the the the, uh, the thing is with that is that Tiny's mo- a large portion of Tiny's contract was deferred. 
and Julius and his agent Erwin Wiener knew that, so they didn't want that contract. So um, it's really sad, really sad. So, Peter, the Nets go on to win the ABA title in Dr. J's first season, but he couldn't do it alone. I know there was John Williamson from New Mexico State was kind of an unknown guy, but he really shined in the finals. How good of a player was he? He, he, was a, he turned out to be a great player. You know, if you if you look it up, the game six against the Denver 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 team in the finals, seventy six game six. Um, I don't believe Julius Irving scored in the second half. Might have, but inconsequential. John Williamson took over the second half with the Nets down double figures, I, I as I recall. And and just he won the game. He won the game for the Nets. And Julius got the MVP, but or whatever he got the accolades. But Williamson, he was unbelievable. Was he the so person? anyway, that attitude, that attitude that Lockery had was, um, you know, I'll give you I'll give you a real real interesting story. Is that so? My Rucker team had won the championship in seventy three and seventy four. Good team. Um, and Julius was on that team. And and there were several other Nets on that team. Billy Paltz was on my team. And um, Ollie Taylor, Joe Dupree, guys that weren't on the championship Nets team. But they were on my – anyway. So when Lockery came in, I, I called him up. I think I called him. I don't think I went to see him. I called him up and asked him if he would entertain me being an assistant coach. And um, he said, you know, he wouldn't, he, he didn't, he didn't think that was good. But so, so, all right. So now I write this column about him, you know, nine, 11 games in nine game losing streak, his attitude toward the team. And uh, he, he forever in a day, he kept accusing me, you know, to, to other people that the reason I wrote that stuff was because he turned me down as an assistant coach. So don't have much love for Kevin Lockery. You know, he's just, he never, I, I used to tell people, I said, Kevin, Kevin stole my, when he won championships with the Nets, he won them because he stole my play that I used in the rocker. And what was that? Time out. Give the ball to Julius. <laughs> was that play, play one, two, and three? <laughs> I mean, come on. How tough was it? You know, so, of course, again, in 76, it was, you know, Williamson was uh, Williamson took over the game. But anyway, it was it was a good joke. But it was um, it was basically true. You know, clear out for Doc. That was Lockery. Clear out for Doc. <laughs> but, but but Peter, that that thought he couldn't have been alone in the way that that had to be a, a prevailing thought amongst a lot of NBA guys towards the ABA, was it not? Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And to this to this day, I still refer to Jerry Colangelo as an NBA snob. Yeah, I mean they they not only not only did they have that attitude, but they didn't have the aptitude to scout the ABA players and understand how good they were. Although they were playing them in exhibition games, starting in whatever year, early seventies, and overall the ABA had a winning record against NBA teams. But even that, 
they just they just never understood you know how good or didn't want to understand how good the ABA was, how many great players they had, and uh, you know that's it's manifested in in many different ways. Uh, but um, the, the famous the famous story about when uh, the dispersal draft, you know, in '76, and Portland got three ABA players in the dispersal draft. They got Moses Malone, you got Maurice Lucas. How do you think Maurice Lucas would deal with uh, with Draymond Green? Um, and, and Dave Twardzik. And so, you know, Jack Ramsey, you know, training camp, I mean, he, in the beginning, he, he just didn't know how good Moses was. He didn't know. And so he's got Walton and he's got Moses as his centers and they're both making $300,000 a year. And uh, the owner, um, whose name I won't be able to remember, he he said to Ramsey, he said, we can't, we can't afford to keep both centers at that price. So call around, call around the league. You know, you, you know, everybody, he wasn't a general manager. He was just a coach. Call around. You've got your friends who, who might be interested in, in uh, trading for Moses. And he calls Red Halsman and he said, Red, you know, my, my owner wants me to trade Moses. And uh, are you interested? And he said, is he as good as John Gianelli? <laughs> I mean, there you have it. Yeah. And the rest and is then, history, as they say. And Jack and Jack said to him, uh, yeah, Red, yeah, yeah, he's pretty good, you know. He's gonna he's gonna get a lot better too. Yeah. He's a young he's only in the NBA two years, so he you know, what was he, 20, 21? And uh so Red passed, he he went with Gianelli, and uh Nick fans love to hear that. And uh, and they so they traded him to Buffalo for a number one pick, and then two weeks later they Buffalo traded him to Houston for two number ones. And why why was Houston willing to give up two number ones? Because they had Tom Nasalki, who was the coach, and Del Harris was his assistant, who were in the ABA. Mm. They knew. And to this day, if you ever, first thing you ever ask, you know, well, first of all, Del Harris, when he went into the Hall of Fame, you know, anybody asked him about his his uh, record career and stuff, he said, I owed all to Moses. He'll say that it, first thing out of his mouth, Moses. Wow. So anyway, it just shows that, you know, that, that they didn't know, they didn't know what was going on. And a lot, a lot of, to this day, to this day, there are ABA players who are not getting their due, due, uh, credit uh not not in the hall of fame the absolute players that should be in the hall of fame finally finally you know we got we got five or six of them in but um you know still jimmy jimmy jones who likes to be known as james jones he deserves to be in and matt calvin and willie wise and you know they they absolutely deserve to be in but jerry colangelo that nba snob is still running the the hall of fame so, hey, Peter, thanks again for rejoining us. I just I know you've known Julius Irving for a long time. I just want to go back to what was the when you saw him first play at Rucker Park? What was what was your feeling about him and how good was he as a player? Well, first, first of all, I saw him play at the University of Massachusetts uh, two seasons, you know, and, and then he left after his junior year. And so. The Julius Irving that I saw at the Rucker was not the one that I saw at the U at UMass. I mean, I saw UMass play against 
Marquette at the Garden against Dean Memminger's team, and uh, I lost a bet on that game actually. And and, and um, you know you weren't allowed to dunk in college. You could not dunk, and you could not dunk even on the layup line. It was a technical. So yeah, that was the rule. So so nobody ever saw Julius dunk. Yeah, we we all knew he averaged twenty and twenty two years. You know one of you know, whatever, six, seven, eight, whatever, how many people have ever done it? And he was one of them. So we knew that. And I knew I wrote about him, you know, with the, at the Daily News, just well, for what I saw. But okay, so the Rucker was, it was a whole new Julius. And and when we saw what he could do, um, you know, we, we went ballistic. Uh, you know, in, in Rucker, in Rucker, they got a big thing up there where, if somebody does something spectacular, there there's 10 minutes of court time for the fans to dance and to act out, you know, in the stands and on and on the uh, and on the uh, court. So when he's when he the first game that he actually the first game was inside because it rained. So we had to go to a IS, whatever it was, and it's very small gym. And we played tiny, tiny Archibald's team. And he was loaded with with pros, just as my team was loaded with pros or really good college players. You know, he had Austin Carr, for Christ's sake, you know, who I think he I think he might have led the country in scoring that year. And he had, you know, Ron Behagen and Jim Brewer and uh, Willie Worsley from the Texas Texas uh, Western Championship team, they were loaded. And uh, Sid Catlett and Marvin Roberts. I remember all of them because Julius dunked on them all. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when we first saw him, when he dunked on Sid Catlett and uh, Marvin Roberts, both 6'8". And, uh, you know, I've told this story many times, visualizing. I can visualize it happening, coming down on the right side, small court. And he took off from, not from the foul line in the middle, but from the from the corner, and he dunked over those two guys. And so, you can imagine, you know, like nobody had ever seen that, you know. So we went we went crazy, and then there was just more of more of the same after that. It just became one possessed possession after another. You know, uh, Peter. We get all caught up in in the in the present day players. Um, they're they're the best. Present day players are always the best. So you know the the argument is Michael and and LeBron and Kobe and you know we talk about the Mount Rushmores. Is Dr. J underrated in your eyes in that regard? He he seems to never, in my opinion, get mentioned with those guys. And should he be? Um. No, I don't think he should be. He he look, he won one championship in the NBA, and that's after Moses Malone joined up. And until then, you know, they were they were they were runner ups a lot, but uh, uh, he wasn't the same player in the NBA as he was in the ABA. And I just read a story recently that Curry Kirkpatrick did in SI that somebody sent me, and. Um, I, I was amazed. I I never read it at the time, and he called Julius out 
you know, like what the hell happened to him? Well, you know, where, where's the one we, what's the Julius Serving we saw back in the day and quoted Julius, you know, often about things, how things changed once he went to the NBA, that the general manager, he said this on my podcast, the general manager, Pat Williams told him when he joined the team that we didn't get you to be this, the same player you were in the ABA. It's like, what? I mean, I couldn't believe it when he told me that. I said, what? And then in that Curry Kirkpatrick's piece, it's there. Wow. He said it way back then. Mm. And 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 so, you know, I, I, I find fault with Julius. I even wrote it on, on Twitter the other day about um, – you know, for him to say some of the stuff he said in that piece, that he was willing to just um, defer. All right, he deferred to McGinnis the first year and the first couple of years, maybe. But, you know, they had really good teams. But he wasn't the same player. You know, he would many, many trips down court. It went from one to the other, which was ridiculous, the way Gene Shue coached the team. And then Billy Cunningham took over and did the exact same thing. And, um, but he allowed that to happen. And it's funny because uh, his wife at the time, Turquoise, she was outspoken about how angry she was that the way they were using him. You know, I, I, I would get all my information from her, not from him. He never said a word to me, but she was, she was outspoken. And, um, but the, the worst thing he said in that piece was, I, I mean, I still can't even believe it. He said that I'm a follower. Mm. Mm. What? You're a follower. Wow. I, I what an indictment. Mm -hmm. So no, I don't I don't believe he does belong in. I mean, was Bird a follower? Was Jordan? Was LeBron? No. Kobe? No. Kobe wouldn't even follow Shaq. <laughs> we know. So yeah. As great as Julius was, and I and I truly believe the ABA points and all the other statistics should be added on to the NBA um, combined with it, um, he still is not in that stratosphere of uh, just taking over the way there was a merger, a consolidation because they wanted Julius in the NBA, and then and then it wasn't the same guy. Still great, still great. You know, again, I've, I've used this many times. A turquoise said to me when he won the MVP in the All-Star game in Milwaukee in 77, his first year. And she, I think I used it as my lead to my column, was that this is the first time that she saw Julius Irving play in the NBA. Whoa. <laughs> so what was Julius's peak years? Was it the first year with the Nets, the last year with the Nets? Well, his peak years in the ABA was every year. So five years in the ABA, won two championships with the Nets. And he won, you know, MVPs of the league twice, I believe. And, um, you know, whether he was with the Squires or or the Nets, he was he was unstoppable. Gotcha. Was he is underrated, but but no, he's not. He's not in the category. He always got pissed off at me. And again, I saw it. Curry Kirkpatrick said it in that piece about, you know, hey, you know, his jump shot's not that good. Well, anytime I said that to Julius, you know, I said to him when Jordan joined up, I said, you know, Jordan is you with a jump shot. Mm -hmm. 
he, he's not happy about that to this day. Was there just more freedom in the ABA is why? Yeah. Yeah. It was and his league. It was his team. It's like I wrote the other day on Twitter in the Rucker, in the Rucker, it was playtime. It was, the, it was a playground game. And he just stood out and above everybody else because of what he could do. You know, everyone said, yeah, he's a dunker and dunker. Because I compared him to Ja Morant. I saw Ja the other night, and I just was trying to think of, like, who did he remind me of the stuff that he can do in the air? It's it's unbelievable what he can do in the air. I, if I were in Memphis, I would have season tickets. Um, you know, people want to talk about his gun stuff. I don't want to talk about his gun stuff. He paid the price now. Let's see what happens. I want to watch him on the court. So Julius, to me, was Ja at Rucker, even though he was six 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 seven, you know, Julius could, he was dunking sometimes, but you're talking about, you know, a, a confined area, man. The playground is not that big. So there's a lot of traffic. So he was changing hands. He was changing directions. He was changing flights. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like every possession was just, unbelievable you know my line at the time was seeing is not believing can you comment on the fact that yeah he 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 was not passive in the aba but when he got to the nba that something inside him just wasn't there anymore no i'm saying i if, what i said was the coaches kevin lockery was his coach with the nets and bianchi was the coach with the squires and i told you you know, last week or whatever, I said, you know, they stole, the Lockery stole my my uh, play. The play was give it to Julius. And that's what Lockery did. And even in that Curry Kirkpatrick piece, he said, I think Julius said, or, or maybe Lockery, somebody said exactly that. They said, well, when things got, no, I think Julius said it, when things got wrong, when things went, when things, we couldn't score, Lockery said, okay, Julius, we need you to take over the game. Well, Phil Jackson did the same thing with Kobe in uh, in L.A. And uh, he also did it with Jordan in Chicago. He would, you know, run the triangle. Jordan, This was one thing Jordan was furious about, is that uh, he loved Jackson, but, yeah, let's play the triangle. Now we're down 15 in the fourth quarter, and you say, okay, now it's your you take over the game. And same with Kobe, exactly the same. So, Julius was in the ABA allowed to take over games, encouraged. So that was his job. And the NBA, no. You know, they're probably too worried about McGinnis's ego. Okay. You know, Doug Collins, same thing. Ego. They want they wanted their shots and they wanted their touches and all that stuff. And he, he accepted it again. He said it himself in that piece. I was like, holy sh**. <laughs> Where was I? I? I should have had that subscription to SI. I know Curry real well. We covered we covered a lot of games together. I missed that one till last week. Peter, we do a little segment here called 50-50 where I ask the guests just a 50-50 question about the this, this subject matter 50 years ago. And the question is, Dr. J led the Nets to two ABA titles in his three years there, true or false? Are the Indiana Pacers the only team in ABA history to win more titles than the Nets with Dr. J? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, they won three. I figured um, you'd go it, but yeah, I had to but no, they won three and then they lost another one in the finals. Uh, coaching error. Coaching error. The players today to this day will say coaching error. But um yeah, the Pacers were the team, you know, and then, you know, early on, and then and then Kentucky won in 75. You know, they they were loaded, Gilmore and Issel. They were loaded, Dampier. Um you know, what the Nets won with was pretty impressive. You know, they had Jim Akins as the center for the, for the 76 team. Billy Pauls for the first one. That first Nets team was incredible. Larry Keenan, Brian Taylor, John Williamson. That, that team was – bring that team into the NBA, what would have happened? Yeah. Do you think if the Nets could have kept Dr. J and not have to basically sell him to the Sixers, it would have been better for him for his NBA career? Well, he says that to this. He he said that on my podcast. I was really surprised. He said it that he he looks back and he wishes he had stayed because he sees that he he felt he felt that that team, even that '76 team, you know, they got tiny. They didn't have Brian Taylor anymore. That was a big loss, Brian, defensively and all that stuff. But they had tiny, and he felt they would make some noise in the NBA for a number of years. I'm not so sure about that. They would have had to get better at center. No offense to Jim Akins and and Kim Hughes. Well, definitely offense to Kim Hughes. But, um, yeah, if they had kept Brian Taylor, probably, you know, probably would have been – he, he would have made a big difference. Hey, uh, one last thing here, Peter. I know that um, my, my two co-hosts here don't know this, but um, mm. you grew up with my – father-in-law as a kid um kevin galvin i lucked out in the father-in-law category well, that's that's your father-in-law yes well, yes who knew? so um, you married, married georgia his daughter no i married kevin's daughter amanda oh kevin's i'm sorry that was his sister kevin's daughter's so how many kids did he have but, uh three kids uh randa amanda and matt and kevin is Pat's the older one. The oldest, yes. Yeah, Kevin. Kevin, I remember Kevin. Good guy. Is he still alive? He is, right? Yes, he's uh, living up in in Berkeley, California. Right. Good. Good guy. I like. I liked him. And Kevin was a professor of philosophy for years and years and years. Yeah, I I, I do believe I ran into Kevin in in California at a at a Warriors game. Interesting. Yeah, he he told way me. back. Is that right? Yeah. So way back, way back when. He got he had gotten old. I don't know what happened. Oh, I know. <laughs> all of us, isn't it? No. I want to tell everyone that um, you know, uh, Peter has this reputation, but we had all sorts of technical difficulties. And like the pro he is, yeah, uh, he let it bounce off him. And this is uh take two, but we really appreciate your time, Peter. And um, thank you. And and I think I speak for Bill and Mark. Write that book, damn it. Please. Write that book. That's a bestseller. We want to hear the other stuff. Dang. You don't know how many how many publishers have turned it down. So I don't know. I uh, I hope that uh, a pu some publisher wakes up and smells the copy real soon. Well, I've got to I've got to present it in a whole different way. But yeah, we'll see. Thank you, Peter. Thank All you. Right, good luck. Thank you. So there you have it. Um, Peter Vesey, never one to mince words. Mm -hmm. I mean, here you think 
that you know he and Dr. J, you know, are are, are buddies, and I'm not saying they're not buddies yeah. at all. Yeah. But that he's gonna maybe sugarcoat it a little bit and say, yeah, he belongs, and boom, no, he comes out for some old article written by Curry Kirkpatrick quoting the doctor as a follower. I mean, you know, I'm sorry, but you just don't get those yeah. kind of answers from most people. They, they, they won't go there. So um, to his credit, uh, what a great answer. And I, I, I just, that was a showstopper when he said that Julia said he was a follower. I, I, don't have, I just thought, I want to say something. I thought, how do you follow that? Because that's not the guy that I saw and I followed as a kid. <laughs> so when he said that, I just thought, wow, you don't get that hard-hitting like that. I really appreciated his honesty because a lot of times people don't want to be honest. They're yeah. afraid of other people's feelings. Yep. And it's important to be honest. And And I thought it was fascinating talking about the fact that maybe if you could have stayed with the Nets, if they mm -hmm. didn't have to, they had to pay that tax to get into the merger into the NBA and thus sold his contract to the Sixers, that I don't know if he'd stayed with the Nets. Maybe it would have been a little different in the NBA, but I, I thought that was very fascinating. I think, yeah. I think that what got me was you – Think about Gene Shue and Billy Cunningham had a rocket in their hand in Julius Irving. Nowadays, they'd feed the ball 30 times to Julius Irving. He'd be fed the ball and everyone else would be like, get out of the way. And you just think the branding nowadays, that they had that right there. And they said, well, make sure that the other guys get their shots or Dr. J don't take over. I'm That, that to me is just just. I mean, if you look at it, just what we what we do nowadays, it just seems crazy. That's why you that's why you talk to Peter Vesey, you know. I mean, because you just you think you know what he might say, or mm. that he might sugarcoat something, like I said, and um, that's just not in him. But I, it's it's fascinating because the cover, you know, we're talking about it and him playing against the Carolina. Cougars in that first year with the Nets, that was the beginning of the three-year period that Peter alludes to as being probably the peak yes. of Dr. J. And he was such a young player back then. And for a lot of us, like like I was saying, we I followed Dr. J in the NBA. Mark knew him or followed him in the ABA. Well, I followed the whole ABA because yeah, it was just so, so you, fun. It was you, Mystery League. Exactly, but you knew it. So, I mean, to think that his, his career peaked in the ABA – but in the NBA, you always have that one where he goes around Landsberger and he does the, you know, everything else. It's just well. It's the other crazy. thing is too is they 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 did everything they could to sign him right mm -hmm. to get to the Sixers. You know what you're getting. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yes. Why are you not you. gonna? Thank why are you, you not gonna put you, that to use? You know. You know what I would love to see is his two. So his first two years with the Virginia Squires. That second year with the Squires before he went to the Nets when he played with George Gervin in his rookie year. Yeah. I would yeah. have just loved to see how the two of those guys played and stuff right. like that. Because Gervin might have been he would have probably given a little bit more to Dr. J. So they would have played off each other. Just just man. Now, let's move on to golf for a little bit. And, um, I mean, back then it was pretty much the Golden Bear, Jack Nicklaus, and, and everyone else. Don't get me wrong. Johnny Miller, Tom Weisskopf, uh, Gary Player, great, great players. But Jack was really kind of owning the tour. And the question was, what young guys were going to come up and be the next great golfers? And someone... A few of them started to really make headway, but one in particular, Billy. Yeah, Tom Watson. He was 24 years old, hadn't been on the tour that long. He didn't win his first event till 
July of 74. But in the long run, and I am not saying that Jack Nicholas wasn't the greatest golfer of all time, but Jack Nicholas won five Player of the Year awards. Watson won six. So, I mean, there's a guy back at the time that you're going, oh, just another guy. Like, when we watch golf, there's always a young guy. Oh, yeah, that guy. Tom Watson went over and above, became just an amazing, great player. And then you have to also just go back a bit with Tom Weisskopf. In that year, Tom Weisskopf won seven of 16 tournaments. That was his year. Yeah. And he finished ahead of Nicholas in nine of 15 events. There were guys out there that were great. When you hear those names now, they're historical. But back in the day, they were, oh, yeah, those guys, except for Nicholas. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Watson won, I think, eight major championships. I think five Opens, uh, two Masters, and a U.S. Open title. Yeah, he's a, he's a, no, he's an all-timer, no question. But the thing is, it is fun to look back through the lens mm -hmm. of history because there's a lot of guys that win something and you never hear from them again. And when they're 24, you kind of make that assumption. They're like, hey, you did it once, yeah, you did it twice, whatever. But you, you never know when you first see greatness yep. and, um, you know, he was, and no one will ever forget the uh, the Watson Nicholas. Oh, here I am. I'm forgetting it. But yeah. what was it? The was it the Open that uh, that Watson beat that beat Nicholas uh, late. Uh, I believe. You know, in, um, yeah. So they had some great duels, and definitely two of the greatest of of any era. I mean, two two of the all time greats. But you know, just in the days, there. Anytime you see a golfer you're not sure what they're gonna turn out to be, even if they win a major. The only one we really knew, Nicholas would have been one, Palmer would have been one, and Tiger Woods. When Tiger Woods won, what was it, back in 97, you knew yeah. oh, he's gonna be amazing, but yeah. no one well, else. Well, in 2009, he almost won the Open Championship. Right. He lost in a four-hole playoff. That's right. And thinking That's about right. it, he was, well, how old was he at the time, 60s, 60? Yeah, you know, which is just crazy. you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. And he was just, I remember that. I remember seeing him just walking on the course, sort of had like a, a kid in a candy store. Like, I can't believe I'm here. Yeah. Great, great player. Um, college basketball. Um, we talked about it a, a little bit last week, but. Um, Can I just read the sentence right sure, here? Sure, sure. Go ahead. Okay, this is what it says. And anyone in the audience listening, tell me the connection right off the bat. A broken play produced a winning basket from LaSalle's 6'10 Joe Bryant and a 67-65 squeaker over Niagara. Um, Joe Bryant. Does that ring any bells? Mm. I like I think, jelly beans. I like yeah, jelly beans, yeah, too. Yeah, Thank yeah. you. Tolstoy yeah. my I jelly beans. I think his son played basketball. Hmm. Hmm. Yes, Joe Bryant's son. Harold? <laughs> <laughs> the legendary Kobe Bryant, yeah, and 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 Joe was 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 a good player, and and what I remember about Joe was, he was coaching. I can't tell it was the, I can't remember it was the G League or what, but he was a player coach, and he decided, or he was a coach, and he decided to play in one of the games, and he scored like forty points, and this was you know he was an older gentleman there. And I remember scrambling while I was working at CBS trying to figure out how the hell to get the video of this because I had to find out if there was video of this. And it turns out there was a small cable company in Torrance that actually shot the game, but they wouldn't give up the tape. So I had to have my, the crew come over there, and they would borrow the tape, and they would feed it back to the station so we recorded there and then give them the tape back. And that's how we got the video of that. Now everybody has yes. a, yeah. you know, a tape. The other one I saw in there that uh, Penn beat Princeton – 69 to 59 and their coach said patience is the key word for mm. us now <laughs> and that coach was chuck daly yes <laughs> I, right? I, do, I do have one as well who's you tell me who this is 
He stole a ball, he dribbled quickly up the floor, took off near the foul line for the basket. In midair, changed hands with the ball by going behind the back and finally flipped in a lefty layup from above the rim, scoring 40 points in two games. Who is that? That's Mark. That is. Besides me. Besides me. I'm done. That was a hell of a play, Mark. Thank you. Thank you. That sounds David Thompson-like. It is. It is. He's in basically every magazine. Yeah. Every issue, he's done something amazing. And I'd love to get a hold of that video and obviously the Torrance cable stations holding that one, too. Yeah, Yeah. probably. Yeah, Yeah. those (laughs) bastards. Once again, I can't get down Um, there. I saw Wes Unseld had 18 rebounds for the Capital Bullets. Now, I didn't know this. Oh, yeah, yeah, I did yeah. not know this. So when They I, were known as the Capital Bullets for one season. When I was a kid, I was trying to find an NBA team to root for. And I, I thought the Baltimore Bullets had a really cool name. And they had Earl the Pearl Monroe on the team. But for some reason, I just didn't follow them. But so the Baltimore Bullets then became the Capital Bullets, then became the Washington Bullets, and then obviously became the Wizards years later. Because the bullets had a negative connotation, they right? Didn't promote right. gun violence. In fact, yeah, they they were the the bullets until '97 when they changed it to the Wizards. A mm-hmm. year before, the most famous wizard was introduced to the world. Oh, Harry Potter. Oh, uh, there you go. But you <laughs> I know was what? John yeah. Wooden. Sorry. <laughs> jo- John Morant would be a perfect player on the bullets, but you know, he, he would. Go. Yeah. Yes. yes. I always liked the bullets name. Yeah. I know. It I was a really the cool name. It was I a know. great name. They're Seven, firing what? on all cylinders. <laughs> West Sunsoul, man, they had some great players. Yeah, yeah they lost they to my Warriors in the finals. Um, and then finally, this is in the 19th hole, which is basically the letters to the editor. Um, and sometimes you get a good little nugget. But Brent Harshman, if you're listening, um, from Abilene, Texas, wrote about Abilene Christian College winning the NAIA championship thanks to a freshman All-American tailback who scored 37 touchdowns that season, went drafted in the sixth round by the Philadelphia Eagles, became one of the greatest running backs in Eagles history. Wilbert Montgomery. Wilbert Montgomery, yeah. So, oh, man. You know, those little schools back then, they produced some, produce some gems every once in a while. I remember him in the 1980 NFL. Uh, yeah. NFC championship game where he dismantled the Cowboys himself. Yeah. Very sad. And who yeah. was his running mate at wide receiver? Harold Carmichael. Harold Carmichael, Carmichael, right? There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Good team. Yes, it coach, was. Coached by? Dick Vermeil. That's right. Vermeil. But they lost it to wasn't Ron the Jor- Raiders. Jim Plunkett and the Oakland the Raiders. Was it Ron right. Jaworski, the quarterback, too? Yeah. yeah. Rod Martin with three interceptions in that I game. Remember that. All right. Hey. That is the January 14th, 1974 issue of Sports Illustrated. Thank you to Peter Vesey, who knows more about Dr. J than anyone should, and Bill Sanders for joining us um, on this episode. Great stuff from both of them. For Mark Hoffman, Bill Mahoney, our technician, Jeremy Ruby, Scott Johnston saying, we're past our prime.